This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our Health Gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Trish and I are so happy to be here with our friend, Jim Gimian, who is a writer, a teacher, and a pioneer, really, in the mindfulness world. He's the executive director of the Foundation for Mindful Society, and he's going to tell us what that means and what that entails. But we want to start, Jim, by asking you about your story and how you came to mindfulness. Thank you, Doro, and it's a great pleasure to talk with you two. I have to say at the outset, it's a pleasure because in in my work, I do get to meet people who are doing exciting, important work in communities across the country. And that's certainly been my experience of the work that the two of you do with bringing mindfulness practices into, into health and really into daily living, as I've experienced firsthand in the conference you do. So it's, it's great to be here and talk about these things that, you know, we're collaborating on, really. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, my story, (laughs) that's not really all that interesting, but I mean, I think the kind of most relevant part is that I really got interested in topics of mindfulness and meditation with things I was disappointed in, in my college years. And that was quite a long time ago in the 60s. I was at Stanford University, 66 to 70. And of course, that was a very formative period. We got involved in anti-war activity, but personally, it soon became clear that the leaders of the anti-war movement had no greater insight into the roots of non-aggression than the people they were complaining about. And so it just seemed like kind of a dead end. I felt the same way about academia. You know, I got to know my professors very well. It was a small school. They were arguably among the leaders in their field as professors at Stanford. But when I got to know them personally, I realized their personal lives were actually total messes, every one of them. And and I thought how odd that this great wisdom in their subject matter had no transference into their daily lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the kinds of things uh, from that disillusionment made me seek for just some other way of knowing, knowing oneself, knowing about the world, being able to see more clearly beyond the confusion of emotions, for example. And so in the Bay Area at the time, there were a lot of opportunities to learn about different methods. And and so I got involved in mindfulness at that time, and it's been a formative practice for me. The vehicle I've used largely in the world is media. I've been, a, as you say, a writer, published some books, but more professionally worked for book publishing companies and magazine publishing companies that were you know, talking about these things, talking about mindfulness and and its benefits. But of course, you know, it's only been the last 
seven to ten years where this has come into the forefront, and we were just really both pleased and slightly surprised that something that we'd spent 30 years being involved with, but not really talking about because it wasn't, you know, it was really a conversation stopper in the 70s, 80s, and 90s to share with a business colleague that you were involved in in mindfulness. But now, of course, in the last 10 years, it's kind of become a a badge of honor. So we seized upon the opportunity to help support this movement by launching Mindful Magazine and Mindful.org and the Foundation for a Mindful Society. And why do you think it did come to the forefront? What happened 10 years ago that made it something people started talking about? I think, as in my own case, that for so many people, when the usual tools and pathways don't work, you start looking around for things that maybe are outside the normally acceptable range. You know, for example, look at teachers, schoolroom teachers, K to 12 across the country. The challenge of the classroom has gotten to be so great that the usual tools and trainings that they're given to manage a classroom with diminishing resources, increasing pressure, test score demands, and all of that has brought many, many of them into looking at ways to work on the stress, to work on the feeling of being frustrated and overwhelmed so that they can maintain a positive presence in the classroom. So I think there you have an example that's being replicated in many, many different sectors mm-hmm. where in a classroom, for example, the main thing that you want to transmit to the students is please pay attention. So, right. you know, we've got this big message, please pay attention, but there's never been any training Mm-hmm. in the simple ways that your ability to pay attention can be strengthened. So I think bringing that kind of training in, working with emotions, working with attention, working with listening skills and communication skills are foundational for any success in any sector. And it's the work of somebody like John Kabat-Zinn over 30 years with mindfulness-based stress reduction has has built a bit of a platform of people who have understood the benefits and are working quietly, mostly in hospitals. But that gave us a kind of foundation when more and more people started looking around to seeing what else can we do to make simple mindfulness and social and emotional learning skills be relevant in a wide variety of settings in work, healthcare, education, First responders work going on with police and with border patrol in really every area of society. So the evidence base, right? There's so many, I think John Kabat-Zinn started it, right? Bringing science to mindfulness. Could you speak about that? How there's evidence now from the, from the medical world that mindfulness actually works to help reduce stress, to help create healthier lives. Could you talk to us about that? Yes. I think the key phrase that you just used is evidence-based. And I think the evidence-based comes from really two, two streams. One is brain science, neuroscience, and the research that's being done. But, you know, I think we can't dismiss evidence-based from decades of, if you, if you talk about mindfulness-based stress reduction, where 
Mindfulness is helping people manage pain in areas and cases where regular doctors and drugs aren't helping. That carries a lot of weight. You know, the way folk wisdom and knowledge about managing life is shared from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. uh, the role mindfulness has had in helping people is also being supported in terms of evidence-based in that way. But of course, the fascination with the brain and the advances in, in understanding, not just understanding the brain, but understanding how much we don't understand about the brain <laughs> has helped support people's adoption of mindfulness in the most mainstream sectors like the military or police or, or schools. And I, I think it's important to note that there has been a dramatic acceleration in the, in the amount of research in terms of mindfulness in the brain a dramatic increase in the number of young neuroscientists who are studying it. There have been some studies that indicate some promising benefits, but I think along with that, we have to be very careful in not overstating the science. And mm -hmm. in here, I think you have a very important lesson about the arc of the way mindfulness has entered into society. It was certainly, as you point out, significantly due to neuroscience breakthroughs on the benefits of mindfulness. But that message gained momentum and as these things happen, got grossly overstated in terms of things being, quote, proven, unquote. Mm -hmm. It's far too early for anyone to say anything has been proven about mindfulness in relationship to neuroscience research. And I think it's a very important thing that those of us who are advocates really emphasize so that we're not seen as overstating what science has shown. Right. Everyone will agree the studies are very promising, the indications are very positive, but that just means more research, more longitudinal research, more robust research. And that's starting. For instance, in, in mindfulness and education, we have a multi-year study going on in Louisville with over 10,000 students that's being researched by the School of Education at the University of Virginia to really set some standards about the benefits of mindfulness of being brought into the school curriculum, mm -hmm. as opposed to previously a lot of self-report, smaller studies, smaller groups of people, shorter periods of time. So yes, science has been critical. There's no doubt that there's positive indications, but we also have to be careful about I don't, I don't think the concern about overstating the science, though, is going to slow down the rate at which people are bringing mindfulness in, because as I say, the evidence base is clear from a lot of different perspectives. What are some of the tried and true benefits? I mean, the things that you can say are definite benefits of mindfulness when people ask you. I think they range from the most fundamental being that one can learn how to be aware in the body and in the mind of the way in which emotions can hijack your attention and your awareness. Whether you're talking about conversations with your child or a contentious issue at work or frustration as, a, say, a teacher in the classroom where you see the gap between what you want to accomplish and what the conditions are allowing you. We all experience this time where 
our body is overtaking, taken with the coursing of certain naturally bodily produced substances that parallel with raging emotions and thoughts in our mind that completely take us off track from fulfilling our goal and from effective action. So you take that basic human challenge that manifests in every area and you insert a set of practices that allow you to come back to the present moment, come back to your body, to your breath, those anchors that you have with you all the time, and find a gap between that input that has riled up that emotion and those thoughts and stolen your attention and your action so that there can be more consideration, more direction, more attention, more focus put to how then you will interact with your world. So then you see it's not a big step from there to go to the benefits of of mindful listening, mindful communication, mindful meetings, all of which have that sort of seed or kernel. And I'll just end with one little story. I was touring the schools in at the Compassionate Schools Project in Louisville, and it was a seven-year-old boy that gave this lesson this day. He was in the principal's office for bad behavior all the time. His mother had him when she was 14 years old. His father was in prison. They lived in a shelter. Uh, His mom was splitting her time between education and work to improve herself, and he he, he was just a, a raging bunch of emotions that got him in trouble all the time. But he'd been through this class, this two-year class about how to center himself, how to bring himself back to, you know, his breathing. So I saw him do that in the classroom. Something triggered him. He did it. He went through that whole cycle by himself. And then afterwards, you know, a group of us wanted to talk to him. And he told us the story of how he had taught that same practice to his mother when Police came to the shelter to try to get some information. And when he saw his mom start acting with a lot of anger and emotion that took her beyond her ability to control. And when you see that, when you see the benefit Mm. to that child, and then you hear him talking about sharing it with his mom, it's, it's really not hard to see why there's so many inspired people working in communities across North America doing this work. It's like learning a language. I mean, when you're younger, it, the benefits of learning a practice is the same as learning a language. At a younger age, it's, it seems to stick and work better. <laughs> That's excellent. That's really a good point. You know, Tim Ryan, when he's a great uh, a friend of ours, yours as well mm-hmm. as mine, a congressman from Ohio who's really been one of the leading advocates of bringing mindfulness into the schools, He talks about his youth. He said, my mom yelled at me. The teachers yelled at me, pay attention. But nobody ever taught me how. (laughs) Now we can actually teach this generation at an early age a skill that will serve them throughout their life. And, you know, this is a a conversation about hard skills and soft skills that we're having in our schools across the country now, where the evidence about the skill set that makes somebody successful in work about how you collaborate, how you work with other people, how you listen, how you can be sensitive to what other people are experiencing in the workplace, are being identified by employers more and more as key elements of success. And these are the very skills, as you say, that training young 
children about mindfulness and social and emotional learning skills, that's what they lead to. That's the skill set that we're infusing into a new generation. But we won't leave older people behind either. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We can't because we're living longer and we'll be here for a lot longer. (laughs) Well, I think that's why I was really impressed with the work that you're doing with your conference. This is not intended to be a plug. I, I think this is an important point. What you are doing is, I think, what we're seeing the next step in terms of mindfulness being an effective part of our lives in society, and that is, it's not a standalone thing that you have to go off and do. It's something that can and needs to be woven in to the daily life that you lead. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a, a key point when you had students and a wide array of people at your conference it was integrating mindfulness into a whole array of health-oriented self-care and creating caring environments. And I think that's, you know, that's more and more what we're seeing uh, about the way mindfulness is, 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 is being integrated as a more routine part of something that fits into your life, not right. something you have to go out somewhere else and do. Right. And you know, you brought up the conference and so many people that come to our conference, it's the first time that they're being introduced to this concept of mindfulness. And I I assume a lot of our listeners, while many have heard about mindfulness, some haven't. So how could you describe, and you actually did a great job explaining the benefits of mindfulness and how it's a practice, but how do you, for the first time, and you're sitting on the beach with somebody or you're in the grocery store, and mindfulness comes up, how do you describe it in a sentence or two? Or is that possible? I think it is possible. I think it's also most effectively done in direct relationship to what the person you're talking to is presenting. I think mindfulness isn't so much about some prescribed path of things that you have to do right. It's about the next step or insight that you can have about how to live a healthier, more productive life yourself. So that's, that's very different. I think staying away from code language is critical. So listening to the language of the person that you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite stories is about a mindfulness teacher who talked about presenting mindfulness training in the oil fields and that they never use the word mindfulness. What the people in the oil fields are worried about is whether the person working next to them is going to make a mistake that's going to cost them an arm and a leg or or their life. Right. So each one of those oil workers said, hey, man, I don't need this training, but my guy next works to me, he does. And the the phrase they used was situational awareness. Mm. That's what they used. So situational awareness, that's, you know, being present, coming back to the body, feeling the breath. But how can you communicate to someone where that's not about a code language or some fancy-dancy, airy-fairy thing? It's immediate, it's gut level, and it speaks right to them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's about the listening to the language and the meaning and trying to sense what is the next thing that that person sitting next to you on the beach uh, Mm -hmm. would benefit from. And that's absolutely free of any set mindfulness jargon or practices. You said the word simple earlier, and we all have the ability to be present and to take a pause and not to overreact, but it's not that simple. 
sometimes. And why do you think that is? Yes, that's a really good point. We sometimes mistake, we oversimplify the meaning of the word simple. Simple does not mean easy. Mm, that's true. Simple simple things are often the hardest. That is such a good point. It is so true. (laughs) It's so much easier to complicate things than to just simplify things. (laughs) Yeah. Simple. Yeah, I mean, if you think, for instance, of cooking, take, take, for example, cooking, oftentimes the simplest recipes are the things that come from so many years of discipline and understanding of the foods and the heat and the way to bring them together with spices that that the hardest things, I mean, I've probably made a hundred different recipes of my favorite pasta dish, olio and olio. It's the simplest thing. It's garlic, (laughs) it's oil, it's a little pepper, but you know, there's a lot of different ways of doing it. And it's a simple dish, but it's not easy to make where all those simple things come together. So Mm -hmm. The practice is described as simple. It's coming back to presence. It's feeling what's going on in your body. It's paying attention to the breath. Those are simple elements. But because life, the brain, emotions are the most complex things in the world, then being simple is really not easy. No. So... Do you think the first step... But I, I want to add one little point there. The reason we get frustrated is because in most of the things that we do, we're used to measuring them with certain markers of progress. If we're going to lose weight, right. we know if we're succeeding or not. If we're going to work out, we know because right. you know we can put on more weight. When it's something as simple as just coming back to presence, there mm-hmm. are no markers of progress to make us have that same feeling of satisfaction. So that's why often you'll hear the best of instructors just say, it's just about coming back. Mm -hmm. It's not about being perfectly clear about being all seeing or all knowing or never experiencing an eruption of emotion. No, but coming just about coming back and coming back, meaning coming back, as you said, into your body, feeling yourself sitting there or standing there? Is that how you describe coming back? Coming back to the present moment. Mm -hmm. And looking around? Like, what do I do when I get to the present moment? (laughs) How do I know I'm there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, we have simple things that we use in order to train our minds to do that, and that is the breath. So, uh, being aware of the breath going out and coming back. And then, you know, when all of a sudden you realize you've been off with um, some past experience reliving in your mind or you're anticipating a future one, uh, you just note that and you come back. Mm -hmm. So I think the good thing is that anybody we know who's lived has had an experience in their life of a moment when they were present, when they were paying complete attention to, could be their child, newborn baby, you know, an incredible, beautiful vista of a sunset or a seashore, you know, whatever it is, it can also be a moment of great fear when you feel like incredibly alive because you are so hypersensitively aware of what's going on. So I think it's connecting 
people do an experience they've already had and, and know about rather than leading them to some foreign land. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when people tell me I can't possibly be mindful because my mind is racing all the time and I, I just, I can't, I can't. And sometimes I try to remind them that just by noticing that your mind is racing and just by taking that first step of realizing that you're not present, is that the first step to being pre- to becoming present, realizing that you're not? Absolutely. That's absolutely right. I mean, that, that's the expression of being present and aware of is noticing whatever's going on, not achieving some perfected state. But I think the other point you bring up here is that there can tend to be in the, in the uh, mindfulness world a default to only a few practices that one must sit in a chair, that one must be quiet, that one must do a particular practice relating to the breath. And while that works for most people, there are many people whose minds and bodies are just don't work that way. And I think it's important to offer people other practices that will foster the same benefit. So, for instance, for a person who really can't sit, there may be uh, physical activities, uh, walking, or there could be certain things that a, a person could do in the gym when maybe they're, they're on a cycle. And instead of listening to music or watching TV, they could pay attention to their feet hitting the pedal as they pedal. And just noticing their mind going off somewhere else and practicing bringing their mind back. The benefit there is going to be a greater benefit from the actual physical exercise. You know, if you put more energy into it, you're going to get more benefit out of it. And so that could make a lot of sense to someone where they're not being asked to um, force their very active body and mind into a, you know, a format that's just uh, creates more chaos and, and activity. So in that analogy that we're using, when the mind goes, bring it back. The mind goes and brings it back. So that's like at the gym when you're doing reps and it's the practice of recognizing where your, that your thoughts are gone and then bringing it back. That's where the practice is. So it's not really sitting there, but it's there. Does that make sense? That's right. I think that's very well said. It's not about sitting there in some perfect posture or attaining some perfect state. It's simply about being aware of when your mind goes off and gently bringing it back. Mm -hmm. I think the gently part's important because, again, we're not trying to punish the mind for going off. It's just what the mind does. Right. And that has many many benefits. You can go through creative flights of mind activity. You know, innovation requires the mind to go far afield and explore areas. But even in innovation, the ability to direct and focus the mind as opposed to being subject to wherever the mind goes on its own, you know, that makes a big difference. And one of the great ways of putting it by a mindfulness teacher is uh, if you want to train the horse, give it a big pasture. (laughs) That's good. And there are a lot of ways in which, you know, the gentleness part of meditation practice is give the mind a big pasture so that it can tire itself out as opposed to 
you're more brutally trying to fit it into some idealized state. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's the piece about non-judgmentally, maybe. Not trying not to judge ourselves too much about, on how we practice, our, on what our mindfulness practice is and how we do it. Well, if the, you know, one of the real goals of a mindfulness practice is to simply notice, to simply see what's actually happening, to see things as they are happening. Oftentimes, our judgments are one of the biggest obstacles getting in the way of that. I mean, I think everybody experiences the hypercritical self-talk constantly going on about how whatever we do is not enough, is not good enough, is not fast enough, is not thin enough, is not beautiful enough, you know, whatever. That, again, is just a function of what the mind does. And by adding non-judgmental into the simplest instructions of or description of mindfulness, we're encouraging ourselves to just set that aside, that whole conversation, that whole part of self-talk, just set that aside. Not even judge it. Mm. You know, just set it aside and, and look. Look at what's going on. The mind has gone off, then come back to mm-hmm. the breath, to where you are present. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever you're using is that anchor. So I think that's why it's so important to put in non-judgmental in the description. Right. So many questions are coming up, Jim. But one of them is, you know, mindfulness, it seems to be tied with a religion, but it's not, right? Mindfulness is a practice that helps you just live your life. How would you describe mindfulness versus religion? Well, I think in, you know, this is a, a point that we have worked very, very hard on in our Mindful magazine and mindful.org to present the practices in plain, accessible language that, as we like to say, will work in every zip code, meaning communicate Mm -hmm. to people in a way that makes sense to them. Because our experience and our conviction is that mindfulness is a common human inheritance, the quality of mind that we're talking about, that experience of presence is something common to all human beings. And further, you know, what science is showing us is that that can be trained. We can improve that capability in the same way as we can improve other capabilities that we have. So if we take that approach, then it underlies all searches for meaning and truth. It's actually about the faculties that we use to experience and adopt the religions or outlooks that we have in life. So I would say, you know, for us, the most rewarding letters that we get are not from the 20-year yoga practitioners who want to tell us about how our articles have, you know, helped them, although that's great, but it's about the, you know, 60-year-old fundamentalist Christian chaplain in a West Texas hospital who tells us about how the practices in Mindful help them be present with the dying patients and in that way make him feel that he's actually a better Christian Mm. uh, with these practices. Mm -hmm. So from our point of view, these are fundamental human skills 
and they will deepen your ability to commit yourself to your religion or your philosophy or, or your practice in life. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. So the field of mindfulness right now is, as you said, exploding, right? People want to know more about it. Where do you see it emerging into? And you talked a little bit about that before we got started. Where is it going and where do you want it to go as one of our pioneers? <laughs> interestingly enough, I mean, for me, interestingly enough, you know, we've, we've seen this kind of explosion of interest. And along with that, of course, becomes all the backlash and the critique, which I think has been very helpful mm-hmm. and is necessary if we're going to actually be fully woven, woven into society. But I think a lot of us have been frustrated in the first five years of explosion of interest that it was a narrow segment of society that was the early adopters. And in that, we've, we saw a lot of lost opportunity. At the end of 2016, I did a set of interviews with about 35 field leaders. And one of the common questions I asked them all is, what do you see emerging in 2017? And at least half of them said, we see the forefront being bringing these practices into the street, into the community, into the most challenging aspects of our society, because if it doesn't do that, what's the point of what we're doing? And it was interesting because, you know, that wasn't exactly what led this emergence of mindfulness. So fast forwarding about 14 months, if I think of where I see the, the real energy of mindfulness practices, it's in the hardest environments in our society. It is the urban schools with a whole array of local and national mindfulness and social and emotional learning in schools. It is in prisons. It is in detention centers. It is in border patrol and police communities where the level of constant stress is so great that in, in the forest fire, you know, forest firefighters, where constant stress in these communities is leading to domestic problems, drug misuse, drug and alcohol misuse, and suicides. These are the unspoken kind of disasters going on in our society, but it is also the areas where I'm seeing the greatest energy among delivery of mindfulness-based practices. And one of the things very heartening is I'm seeing that the leading foundations who, for years I've lamented, have not really jumped into supporting the application of mindfulness practices in society, but because they now see that it has a relevant role to play in improving the lives of people in the hardest sections of our society, they're starting to step up. You know, some of the largest foundations are supporting this Compassionate Schools project in Louisville, Kentucky, again, making it more mainstream. And I want to say that it's not like mindfulness is the great solution, but it is showing that it is a benefit in itself by bringing more awareness and focus to whoever's involved, but it also helps support other practices. It helps people live happier and healthier lives by developing healthier life habits. Helena, habit change is really tough, but mindfulness has a role to play and can benefit. So I think that's what's, in a way, I will say, frankly, renewed my own enthusiasm. After five or six years, Mindful Magazine has 
established a presence. It's close to being self-sustaining, which for a media project is very challenging in these times. It's established. And so while I'm turning my attention as the executive director of the Foundation for a Mindful Society to some of these projects like Mindfulness in Education, where we'll develop more content for teachers to deal with stress and overwhelm, and we'll be engaged in places like Flint, Michigan, and Baltimore, Maryland, and Louisville. The other big area that I'm seeing is in systems approach to challenging problems, where maybe in a lot of these cities we've had mindfulness in schools and maybe mindfulness in the hospitals, but now what people are picking up on is we need to bring all the aspects of the city, the leadership, political, nonprofit, business, we need to bring in the first responders, we need to bring in all components and have them share in these practices so we get a sort of critical mass of social and emotional leadership to create a flourishing city. So this is an emerging conversation that we've coined Mindful Cities as a project that has us working, you know, in a way that's beyond the media model. We're not going to be selling more magazine subscriptions in Flint, Michigan, but this is important work where mindfulness can be part of a big leverage to bring mindfulness practices in to benefit a wide swath of our of our community and it's been very, very inspiring to see the work people are doing. So inspirational. And and when you just said community, as you know, that's a big part of what our conference is about. And the idea is to build a community that supports each other. If we can be kinder and more compassionate, what a wonderful place to live. That's right. And, you know, it, it means we'll be creating nourishing and healthy environments and not spending so much time on the remedial work that we have to do because of the messes that we've created by fostering environments that are toxic. When you put kids in environments of constant tension and pressure, the stress levels have a deleterious impact on their learning skills. And then we lament later why the kids didn't do better in school. It's crazy. You're exactly right. Yeah. And we hear you on that. Wow. What a discussion. Jim. Jim, thank, thank you. Thank you for being such a good friend and a mentor to us. Yes. We felt lucky the day that I, we met you mm-hmm. and have been able to have this friendship and relationship and you've guided us into different places and we're very grateful to you. Couldn't wait to talk to you. <laughs> well, have- that's very kind. I hope some of it's true. I want to say equally that it has been very much of a mutually beneficial experience. In coming to the conference and seeing how you approach your work, you have expanded my understanding. When I can talk about, you know, with some credibility about the need to weave practices into everyday life, you know, that was really spurred on by our conversation and watching what you guys are doing. So it, it is a mutually enriching conversation we've been having. We love our friendship. Doro's getting ready to pull up the rapid fire questions. Are you ready for them? (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) So we ask all of our guests the same questions. So we want to ask you, what book do you think everyone should read? I would say the book that they'll actually pick up and read. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, One of the leading researchers on mindfulness, did a book tour recently and was always asked, well, you've researched 
all of the meditation practices and mindfulness practice, which one is the best? Tell us which one is the best. And he said, the answer to that is the one that you'll actually do. <laughs> That's true. So, so I think it's, you know, I think it's more important, especially in these times that if you got an inclination to read a book, please, please read it. <laughs> what quote brings you strength and peace? Well, this is a little bit longer quote that would be hard to, this comes from a very old meditation text, but it speaks in very plain language and it's been kind of my enduring fall back in times when nothing else I couldn't remember. It describes mindfulness practice. It says something like everyday practice is simply to develop a complete openness and acceptance to all situations to all emotions and to all people, experiencing everything totally without reservation and blockage and not withdrawing or centralizing onto oneself. Hmm. Wow. That's, that's really something. We will put that in our show notes. (laughs) What would you say to your 30 year old self, 30 year old Jim? Oh God. (laughs) Maybe just that. (laughs) I would say one, probably another one of my favorite lines, let the phenomena play. Mm -hmm. When I look back, I mean, I don't know if you want commentary, but when I look back on my 30 year old self, I always thought I knew it was right. And I was trying to force everything into that without trusting that there was a lot of wisdom in the world. And there was, you know, we could give things room to play out and, I spent an awful long time, an awful lot of time kind of, you know, fighting battles and trying to manage things that didn't really need managing. <laughs> Let the phenomena play. I like Love it. Um, what's your favorite meal? That's easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, dim sum with soup dumplings and Ooh. noodles. Oh, I thought yeah. you were going to say the pasta yeah. that you make. Because that sounded really good to me, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, still work, I'm still working on that recipe. Okay, okay. <laughs> dumplings. I like dumplings. Mm, okay. Who would you like to sit next to at dinner tonight if you could sit next to anyone? Well, I think, again, because I'm into collaboration, I would put together a small dinner party. And it would include Sun Tzu, the Chinese general and author of Art of War. It would include Mahatma Gandhi. You know, mm-hmm. the activist who really mm-hmm. employed nonviolence in, in the face of civil disobedience. And it would include Emma Gonzalez. Mm. Emma's the young, the teenager from the school shooting who's the leading one oh, of the leaders yeah. of the gun control. I mean, and, and I would love to have that dinner party. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be an interesting one. Maybe we could we'd like to come. Yeah, can we come? <laughs> <laughs> Let's record it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Health Kick. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>